Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany, a Lutheran church in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And as his country went through the turmoil of the rise of National Socialism, Bonhoeffer grew increasingly concerned about an issue that he saw in his own church. He saw that in the church, while his country was being swept up in nationalistic fervor, he saw that his church had begun to love something else more than they loved Christ. He saw a church that was pursuing comfort and conformity over courage and faithfulness to Jesus. He saw a church that increasingly went with the flow of the culture rather than being countercultural and following in the ways of Jesus. So he wrote the book, The Cost of Discipleship, which is a great book. I recommend it. It's not all that needs to be said, but what it does say is so important to be heard. Uh, And so, um, The Cost of Discipleship, Calling the Church to consider whether this path that they are on is actually the path of following Jesus or not. And before we think, well, that was a different time, a different era, we wouldn't do that. We must stop and consider how quickly our hearts are turned away from Jesus. We must consider how often we love other things more than following him. How often we may love comfort and conformity over courage and faithful loyalty. It's easy to get caught up in following the crowd. It's actually pretty exciting. This is why we have believers and eagle fans and all sorts of crazy things that people get caught up in because they love being with the crowd and being excited and being supported in what they do. And we live in a world where there is a contest of loyalties. Where Christ calls us to himself and the world calls us to itself. How do we navigate this? How do we think about this? How do we recognize our own propensities to fall into the same things that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was concerned about in his own church? This leads us to our passage this morning. We're in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, uh, starting in verse 25. Uh, And as usual, I forgot to write the page number. Anyone want to? 821. All right, 821 in your pew Bible. Uh, Hopefully we'll get you uh, to uh, Luke chapter 14, verse 25. If you're visiting this morning, we are continuing a sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, This section runs from Luke 9 to Luke 19. And this section is dominated by Jesus at the end of Luke 9, turning his face towards Jerusalem, turning his face towards ultimately the cross and his death and resurrection, um, and facing and walking towards the greatest suffering that he would embrace. 
And as he's doing that, part of what we've seen is that uh, though that was his purpose, he was also collecting a great crowd. There were many people who were following him, some amazed by his power to heal diseases, some hungry literally for food that he was producing for those who followed him in miraculous ways at times, some eager to see him rise up and lead the nation of Israel in in rebellion against the Roman control over them. But many of this crowd was caught up in, in this sort of crowd mentality. And Jesus has words for them and for us this morning. And so this is where we come to in Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. Uh, let's read this together. Now, great crowds accompanied him, that is Jesus. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, And does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It is no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears... Let him hear. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we look at this text this morning, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. That by your Holy Spirit, you would remove the distractions that are flitting through our mind right now. That you would take the burdens and the anxieties that weigh us down. Lord, that you would uh, keep us awake when our bodies are weary and tired. Lord, that you would help us to have ears to hear. Not only to hear your word and your call upon our lives, but that we would have hearts that are ready to be not only hearers, but doers also. That we would respond to your call this morning by your spirit. Lord, I ask for your help this morning that you would be with me, Lord, and that you would be with us and that your word would speak to us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we uh, look at this, excuse me. As we look at this text this morning, Jesus has a very simple and striking message for us. 
What he says is half-hearted followers are not really followers at all. Half-hearted followers of Jesus are not really followers of Jesus at all. As he unpacks this, he gives us a warning. He gives us an instruction and he gives us a call. So we're going to look through that, Jesus' warning, Jesus' instruction, and Jesus' call uh, as we understand this very sometimes shocking message that a half-hearted follower is not, or is not really a follower at all. So first, let's look at Jesus' warning. You heard it as I read through the text. There was a refrain, was there not? In verse 26 and in verse 27 and again in verse 33, He says, you cannot be my disciple. And this is such a striking thing, isn't it? Because we think Jesus is love and grace to us. And he has come to us and he has invited us to himself. And how could it be possible that one who seems so warm and some who has been so committed to pursuing us and loving us and bringing us to himself would have words like this on his lips? You cannot be my disciple. And yet he does. He exposes three different ways in which we turn our hearts away from following Jesus with all that we have. In verse 26, he talks about our relationships. Look with me again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his very own, even his own life, he cannot be his disciple. Now listen, friends. Let's not be over, over, real, uh, over literal on this, okay? This is the man who said, love your enemies, let alone love your family, honor your father and mother. Jesus is not talking about us And if you're a teenager here and you're like, yeah, I really do hate my parents. And Jesus says, it's okay. That's not what he means. (laughs) What he does mean, though, is that this is a relative term. Jesus is saying, I want your heart to be so fully mine that it were as if in relationship to your love for me, you hated even those who are most dear and most close to you. Jesus is claiming a primary loyalty, a primary identity. Saying even the most most intimate of our human connections, mother, father, husband, wife, brother, sister, even the most intimate one of our very own lives. He says this is these are to be hated in relationship to, that is there to have no value in relationship to the value and the love and the devotion that you give to me. It is both external, the, the network of relationships that we live in, and internal in our hearts. We're to die to ourself, our self-will, our selfish pleasures, our self-determination, our self-salvation strategies whereby we seek to justify ourselves through our work, through our play, through our pleasure, through everything we do. And Jesus says, you must hate these things in relationship to me. Or 
again to restate it. You must love me so much that it it is as if you hated these things. When I was overseas, I had the privilege of knowing a uh, Chinese co-worker uh, who uh, worked in campus ministry. Uh, when he came to faith in college, uh, he came through the witness of some friends, and he went home and told his parents about his newfound faith. His parents kicked him out of the house, said, don't come back until you change your mind. You have brought dishonor on this family. You've brought dishonor uh, on our culture by turning to this outside thing. I knew him quite a number of years after this event. He had still only been back to his hometown once. He did not stay with his family. He was not welcome there. The last I had heard to him Heard, heard from him about his relationship with his family. He had talked to his father once on the phone and it did not go well. My friend counted the cost of knowing Jesus. Many times during those years after his initial profession of faith, he could have said, this isn't worth it. I love my parents too much. I've lost my family and I, I, I don't know what to do. I'm going back. He could have come back, gone back and said, okay, it's not important to me, not, not as much as you are. But he didn't. We don't tend to face that in our culture in the same way. And yet maybe more subtly, you feel the pressure to be less than wholehearted in your following of Jesus and in your loyalty to him. Maybe you feel like you'd like to have one foot in Jesus' camp and one foot that's kind of skating along, doing okay. Maybe that's in your career path and with your colleagues. Maybe that is with your family at home. Maybe it's with your friends and peers at school. Jesus says, if you do not hate your relationships that are closest... In relationship to me, you cannot be my disciple. Not only does Jesus call us this in relationship to our, our, our network of relationships, but it also calls us to our way of life, to thinking about this. This is what I think Jesus is saying in verse 27. Look with me again. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now remember, Jesus said this before his own crucifixion, although we read it knowing that he was speaking better, he was speaking knowing what was coming, uh, and he was instructing his disciples who would understand later the fullness of all that he was saying here. But even they in that moment would have heard, pick up your cross as a terrifying call. To pick up your cross is to carry the cross beam upon which you would be crucified, through the streets. It signified great physical suffering. Crucifixion was terrifyingly painful. But it also was a mark of shame. It was not something that would be uh, done uh, except in the cases where they wanted to punish publicly, make a spectacle of this person who was being 
crucified and executed. It is, of course, a picture of of heading to death and dying to self. But it is a most humiliating, a most painful way of doing so. And Jesus says, you must be willing to walk this path. We have friends, national Christian workers that we know in Central Asia who sent a report last fall about a friend of theirs, a young man who was staying at his relative's house. At night, three people broke into his house and attacked him. They beat him with sticks, kicked his head, broke his jaw, and injured his eyes. They demanded that he deny Jesus and make a Muslim confession. But he did not deny, and they left him to die. When he was taken to the hospital, the doctor said he would not survive. Praise the Lord, he did survive. And now he and his family continue to believe in the Lord and pray for his complete healing. They end with this. Please pray for this guy and his family who are being persecuted for their faith by the villagers. This man wakes up every morning bearing a cross of physical pain because he would not deny Jesus. He also carries the pain of knowing that his family every day is potentially in danger because of their profession of faith. Jesus says, following me is a disavowal of a commitment to our life of comfort, to a life of ease, to a life of avoiding suffering and pain. How can you choose to pursue Jesus in this way? What are the ways that you can step away from our cultural movement towards everything being safe and everything being provided and everything being comfortable and everything being easy? How can you step away from that and pursue Christ? Now look, Jesus doesn't call us to be stupid. He doesn't call us to flagellate ourselves, to create suffering on our own in order to feel like we're walking the walk of Christ. But maybe there are ways today where you could ask yourself, have I been more committed to being comfortable than to being faithful to Jesus? Are there ways that I have been more committed to going with the flow than actually bearing consequences for following Christ. In my own personal disciplines, in my own personal habits, am I choosing faithfulness or am I choosing ease? The third thing that Jesus says is in verse 33. After he tells the two parables that we'll get to in just a minute. He comes back to this refrain again. He says, so therefore if anyone, if any one of you, therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What about your stuff? Your earthly possessions? Your wealth? What about your reputation? Your place in society? Your place in your community, 
Jesus never says, you can't have these things. It is so clear in the New Testament in the first century, there were people who had things. Even the apostle Paul would claim his Roman citizenship at times for the sake of the gospel. But fundamentally, he had disavowed that as being the most important thing about him. And this is the question for us who live in an extremely materialistic culture, who live in a culture where we are constantly looking for the next Instagram photo or Twitter feed or something to help us know where we fit in the world. Jesus says, will you renounce those things and follow me? Will you forsake the shame that you feel for the things that you don't have in this world? Will you recognize that that shame can be replaced by the full acceptance and glory of being God's child? It does not matter what you have in this world when you have Jesus. Are you willing to give what you do have and recognize that everything that you have has been given to you and is ultimately at Jesus' disposal. This is not a Marie Kondo moment where you're just decluttering your life to make it more comfortable and a little cleaner. It is sacrificially giving the things that you would rather keep for the sake of following Jesus. Friends, Jesus says, if you're going to be a follower of me, you must surrender all to me or you cannot be my disciple. So this is the thrust of his teaching. And then in the middle, he embeds these two uh, parables, his instruction on how we are to think about this. And fundamentally, both parables have one point. This is in verse 28 through 32. The parables of building a tower and going to war, the one point is count the cost. If you're building a tower, why would you begin not knowing if you had the resources to finish it? Now, I know when I lived in China for a few years, during the housing boom and the economic boom, There were lots of people who built buildings like this. And they didn't feel very ashamed about it. It didn't seem like. But it seems that in the first century, when you look at the parable and how Jesus says, the people began to mock him when he could not finish it. What kind of businessman are you when you start a project and you don't have a plan? You haven't counted what the cost should be and therefore you cannot finish it. Shame on you. Jesus seems to be pulling on that to say it is disgraceful to not count the cost. And then he goes on, he talks about war. If a king has these resources and he goes to war against this guy who has double the resources, he's got to think through, can I win this war? And if he sees that he can't, then he should be responsible and sue for peace to avoid bloodshed and his own, and his own army being completely destroyed. For that king to not count the cost, to not look ahead and see what it would mean for them to go to war and to address it 
At its core, Jesus is saying to not count the cost is foolish. It is foolish in the most biblically weighted way of not just silly and immature, but foolish in the sense of being wrong, being irresponsible, acting without regard to your responsibility before God. And when Jesus says these things, he has, I think, two audiences in mind. Because for one, one of his audiences is this crowd. Remember we talked about at the beginning, Jesus was collecting a big crowd of people. And they may be coming for all sorts of reasons. And Jesus doesn't do what the church in the 20th century has at least been tempted to do, which is to water down the gospel call and the bar that it, of what it means to follow Jesus. Come to Jesus no matter what because he's going to make your life easy and we don't want you to think that there's going to be anything asked of you in this or it's not going to cost you very much. Come and be a part of this. Come be, and, and we love to build an organization or a movement or uh, a crowd or a mob of people who get really excited about church but who haven't necessarily counted the cost of following Jesus. Friends, this is why the prosperity gospel is so dangerous. Because it promises that Jesus is calling you to find in him your best life now. The fulfillment of all of your human materialistic dreams and, and, and that, you will, that God wants you to be comfortable and that God wants you to be happy in your own definition of what that means. And Jesus says something very different. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, count the cost of leaving everything behind in this world to get everything you ever really wanted in me. Jesus' message is, the call for you to follow me is to go through a Copernican revolution where the world before Copernicus thought that the earth was the center of the universe and that everything revolved around the earth and that's what we do in our sinful, selfish hearts. We think it's all about us. And the call for Jesus and the call of the gospel to believe in Jesus is not Jesus coming and aligning those worlds a little bit more fortuitously for us but it is completely reworking our understanding so that the sun is in the middle of our solar system and we are orbiting our lives around him and he is the centerpiece and as the centerpiece he is the life-giving power that brings all that we need to flourish in the way that God created us too but only as we reorient ourselves in that way Remember that this comes right after the passage that Greg preached on last week where Jesus told a parable of inviting people to a great banquet table. This is what Jesus is doing is he's calling us. He's saying it's going to cost you everything but you're going to come and eat at the banquet table of the Savior and of the creator of the world. You're going to come and find in life, in relationship to me, you're going to find a great joy and abundance Jesus call to the crowd was don't be a believer in following me don't be a shallow excited follower of me but count the cost
recognize it will cost everything. Jesus' audience wasn't just the crowd, though. It was also his disciples who were with him, those who had already begun to leave. Certain times you see this through the Gospels. Um, there's, this great, there's this powerful moment at the end of John 6 where Jesus begins to teach about his own death and about the need for them to be joined with him in his death uh, using the pictures of eating his flesh and drinking his blood as an image of what that means to be joined with him. And then... People are turned off. They're like, that's gross. I don't want to do that. What in the world? This guy's crazy. And many people stop following him. And he turns to his disciples and says, what about you? Are you going to go too? And they look at him and they say, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Matthew 19, similarly, Peter says, haven't we left everything to follow you? And they had, and yet they continued to learn ongoing, in an ongoing way what that meant. It's not just the entrance, I've renounced it all the first time when I walked in, but it's an ongoing thing. Some of you have walked with the Lord for a long time in this congregation, and you have seen the temptations that rise up, not in the first five years when you're trying to forsake what you used to have, but now that you've been in life for a long time, you see the new ways in which your heart begins to latch onto other things. My grandchildren, my retirement my health. And these things become the thing that we start to live for. And Jesus says, will you surrender them to me? Now look, we need to be clear on this. It is not a matter of perfection. The apostle, Jesus, or the apostle Peter himself, who was the one who said, we've left everything to follow you was the same apostle who, on the night when Jesus was arrested, denied him, said, I don't know him. It is not about us being perfect in all of our choices and being perfect in our loyalty. This is not the true mark of a disciple. What it is, is when the Lord puts his finger on something in our lives and he says, will you give me this? When the Lord reveals something, and friends, let's be clear, Jesus isn't talking about sinful things. He's already called us to forsake sin. So it's not that we need to give up our porn addiction, or we need to give up our embezzlement, or we need to give up our bitter spirit. That's not what Jesus is calling us to here. Jesus is calling us to give up good things, right things that we normally should be able to enjoy, but how easily our hearts latch onto them. And when Jesus says, will you give me this? Will you give me this? Will you surrender this? That's when we count the cost. You know, it, it strikes me that one of the deepest ways when I see people, when I see some of you counting the cost has to do in relationships. Some of you are single Some of you are single on the earlier end, hoping to be married. Some of you are single further on in life, maybe for a second time, maybe still hoping to be married, or maybe not hoping to be married. 
But I have seen you pursue faithfulness in Christ and counting the cost. I have seen you swim against the tide of the current of our culture, which says you deserve to be happy, go and express yourself, there's nothing wrong with that. You have chosen faithfulness to Christ and said, I will pursue purity, I will pursue healthy relationships, I will pursue serving others, I will pursue a stewardship of the freedom that I have in this season of my life to be a blessing to others rather than allowing yourselves to wallow in self-pity or run off after fleeting pleasure. I've also seen some of you who are married count the cost and follow Jesus. Persevering through disappointment. When your life hasn't looked like what you thought it would when you first entered into marriage. When your spouse has been a greater disappointment in ways that you never saw coming. And I've seen you choose faithfulness to Jesus over selfishness, over bitterness, over recrimination and fighting and anger. I've seen you stay in and seek to love and to serve your spouses for the sake of Christ. And it's humbling to see you do this. These are some of the ways that we count the cost How can we do it? Well, friends, there's only one way that we can do this. We can only count the cost because as the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 13, because there is a treasure in a field that is worth selling all that we have in order to gain. The reason why we can count the cost and lose it all to follow Jesus is because he went ahead and did this for us. Jesus, in Philippians 2, forsook the privilege and the prerogatives of divinity to come and take on human form. He identified with us in our humanity, and he identified with us in our weakness and our frailty, and he identified with us by taking our sin upon himself, bearing responsibility for that which was not his. And headed towards the cross, dying in our place for that. Jesus gave up everything, even his very own life, to be our Savior and to rescue us from our sin. Friends, this is the treasure is to be loved like a sa- by a Savior like that. To be in relationship to a Savior like that. To know that this is the God that we are selling all that we have in order to gain. This is what the Apostle Paul was writing about in a passage that we read earlier from Philippians. To count all these things as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. Being found in Him. Because being related to Christ is the most glorious and most wonderful gift that God has ever given us. We who don't deserve it, we who have rebelled and run away from it, he has come so that we might return 
And yes, there is a cost. He says, sell it all in order to follow me. You cannot be half-hearted in this. You must be fully in or you're not in at all. But to be fully in is to get it all. All that God has for us. This is what the good news of the gospel is. And this is what the call of the gospel is. To believe in Jesus Christ is not to add on a nice thing into our existing life. But to believe in Jesus Christ is to go through this revolution whereby everything we have is given to him and we throw ourselves then onto his mercy and his grace and find in him a life of following him that is beyond what we could ever imagine. And this is what Jesus does in the last two verses of our our passage this morning. Jesus' call is to be true salt, to be a a full-hearted follower of Jesus. So he uses the image. uh, Commentators have a fun conversation about salt and whether salt can actually lose its saltiness and what kind of salt it was. Some people say salt never loses saltiness. This is just an image. It's kind of a hypothetical. Other people say the Dead Sea salt was salt that had impurities and over time it would actually decay and become useless. I don't think it matters, to be honest with you. It's, it's very clear what Jesus is saying. Salt is worthwhile when it is salty because that saltiness makes it useful. It gives flavor to our food and it preserves the things that we rub into it. This is why salt is worthwhile. And if it is lost, those properties, it is nothing but a useless rock. And the only thing to do with it is to throw it away in the trash heap. You can't even use it in your fields or in your fertilizer. You have to throw it in the trash because it's useless. And this is what Jesus wants to bring home to us. If we claim to be a disciple of Jesus, that is a follower one who is identified with. You guys know, right? This is what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who's identifying themselves with Christ. This is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer was so concerned as those who were Christians were aligning themselves with national socialism as their highest loyalty. For us, if we are called to be Christians, then we must surrender all to Christ. Everything we have must be his. We must make him the priority over all of our relationships, over all of our dreams and hopes, over all of our uh, belongings and possessions. He calls us to have a different orientation of our life where all we do is look to him and follow him and all these other things that the world will say that our hearts will long for and reach out for all these things fall fall to the side so that we can focus on Jesus and follow him and walk after him and then they find themselves then they find new places in this life Potentially. Sometimes we forsake them and they're gone forever. Other times God gives us new places for them to fit. But they fit within a clear, 
uncompromising, wholehearted loyalty and faithfulness to Jesus Christ himself. One of my heroes of the faith is a uh, 19th century uh, woman missionary named Amy Carmichael. If you haven't read A Chance to Die, uh, it's my other book recommendation for you this morning. A uh, Chance to Die, by, uh, written by Elizabeth Elliot. Um, she was born in the latter part of the 19th century to a wealthy family. While she was a teenager, her uh, family business went bankrupt and she was broke. Her father soon died. Uh, tragically, after that, she spent her early her late teens and early 20s uh, caring for her family, working to provide for her widowed mother. As as she also then grew in her faith in Jesus uh, and her ministry to uh, some of the working class women in her neighborhood, um, she suffered from a form of myalgia, experiencing weakness and pain in her uh, in her limbs uh, that was a constant companion for her. And yet, one night at a meeting, she heard God speak to her in an audible voice saying, go overseas as a missionary. And the cost was great to all around her who would take care of her mother, who would continue the ministry. But she knew that the most important thing was to obey God's will for her. And she said, nothing is too precious for Jesus. So she gave up those things. She went to Japan for a couple of years and had a very difficult ministry experience there. She came home and then was reassigned. She went to India, found a place of ministry among women. But even there, she found herself outside of the normal missions patterns, outside of the normal missions strategies, particularly as young girls who were fleeing from temple prostitution in the Hindu temples started to run to her house and say, please help me. And she began a whole ministry to these girls. She was one of the original warriors against sex trafficking in the Christian church. She wouldn't have called it that, but that's what she was doing. She did this for the rest of her life. Ten years into her ministry in India, she had a fall. She broke her spine and her hip. She was bedridden for the rest of her ministry. Literally. And yet she stayed for another 15, 20 years. She died where she ministered. She's buried there today. Elizabeth Elliot writes this about her attitude. With all her heart, she determined to please him who had chosen her to be his soldier. She was awed by the privilege. She accepted the disciplines. Loneliness was one of those disciplines. How the modern, <clears throat> the modern young person always wants to know, did she quote-unquote handle it? Amy Carmichael would not have the, had the slightest idea what the questioner was talking about. Handle loneliness? Why, it is a part of the cost of obedience, of course. Everybody is lonely in some way, the single in one way, the married in another, the missionary in certain obvious ways, the school teacher, the mother, the bank teller in others. But as Amy wrote, when I consider the cross of Christ, how can anything I do be called sacrifice? 
She knew what God had made her in Christ. And she gave all that she had to live for his glory. Some of you may be called to give up all to go somewhere else to serve him in a missions manner. Many of you will be called to stay where you are and to live for him in a missions manner. For you to think about the wholehearted commitment. Sometimes it's actually easier to be a missionary because your whole life and job is oriented towards this. I feel like this sometimes as a pastor. It's very easy for me. And I look at some of you and I know how challenging it can be. And yet I want you to hear the clear call of Jesus. Make him first. If you love anything more than him, you cannot be his disciple. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. The end of that hymn says, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Friends, this is what Jesus calls. He calls us to faith and belief in him and to follow him wholeheartedly. We're going to go to prayer, and as we go to prayer, the music team will come up, but I want to invite you to spend a minute is the Holy Spirit this morning putting some, uh, his finger on something in your life today? Is he saying, will you surrender this to me? Will you give this to me? Maybe you're here this morning and you've never actually said, Jesus, here's my whole life. Maybe you haven't ever surrendered to him in faith. Maybe he's calling you to do that this morning. So we're just going to spend a few minutes in quietness. And then we'll, uh, I will pray and we'll transition to singing. So let's pray together. it is for our hearts to already be turning to other things help us to hear your voice now Lord if there's anything you are putting on our hearts any things that you are calling us to surrender to you any ways that you are showing us the hardness of our hearts where we have not forsaken all to follow you Lord, if you're calling some this morning to put their faith in you for the first time and to give up the things that they're afraid to lose. Help us to hear your voice this morning.
us to respond. Jesus, all that we have, it's come from you. You're our creator. You've given it all to us. Lord, will you give us the faith to give it back to you, to surrender all to follow you. set our hearts not on our own comfort or ease of life but Lord to courageously say that we will follow you and our lives will be for your glory that we would make you our everything help us Lord we pray in Jesus name continue to worship. Let me invite you to stand and sing.